This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but as always, please call me Mike. Today I'm speaking with Professor Greg Huff about World War II in Southeast Asia, Economy and Society under Japanese Occupation, out with Cambridge University Press in 2020. World War II in Southeast Asia won the Lindart Williamson Prize from the Economic History Association. Greg is a senior research fellow at Pembroke College, University of Oxford. He is the author of The Economic Growth of Singapore, Trade and Development in the 20th Century, and co-editor of and contributor to World War II Singapore, the Chosabu Report on Sionanto. Please forgive my Japanese pronunciation. Um, He has a large number of publications in the Journal of Economic History, Economic History Review, Economic Development and Cultural Change, Oxford Oxford Economic Papers, Cambridge Journal of Economics, World Development, Modern Asian Studies, and the Journal of Southeast Asian Studies. To say that World War II and Southeast Asia, economies and society under Japanese occupation is an impressive achievement is a huge understatement. It is based on years of research in over two dozen archives on three continents. The book explores how Japan as part of its plan to build an East Asian empire and secure oil supplies essential for the war in the Pacific, swiftly took control of Southeast Asia. Dr. Huff describes the occupation's devastating economic impact on the region. Japan imposed country and later regional autarky on Southeast Asia, dictated that the region finance its own occupation, and sent almost no consumer goods to Southeast Asia. GDP fell by half everywhere in Southeast Asia, except for Thailand. Famine and forced labor accounted for most of the 4.4 million Southeast Asian civilian deaths under the Japanese occupation. World War II in Southeast Asia presents a new understanding of Southeast Asian history and development before, during, and after the Pacific War. Dr. Huff, Greg, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And so I'm I'm excited to have you on the podcast as your comprehensive account of the economic and social history of the war in Southeast Asia is certain to reshape the field and I think our general understanding of the Pacific War. But before we get into the book, let's start with a question about you. Um, You're currently Senior Research Fellow at Oxford. Could you tell us a bit about how you became a scholar of Southeast Asia um, and a scholar of Southeast Asia's economic history? 
I'm curious both about your attraction to the region, but also your development as an economic historian. Well, uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and Penn had a strong interest in economic history. And my first economics teacher as a freshman was a guy named Dick Duboff, who's still a lifelong friend and read <laughs> read every word of this book. And he had another graduate student friend, uh, Al Fenichel. And Fenichel had written a paper on Burma, uh, a long paper, and he, he wanted a research assistant. So uh, Duboff put him uh, in touch with me. And uh, of course, I didn't know anything about Southeast Asia or Burma. Uh, but I started reading. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then I had at least some knowledge, not really very much, of Southeast Asia. And when I got to LSE as a graduate student, uh, my first supervision meeting was with uh, an economic historian, Jack Fisher, uh, and Hala Mint. And they, I said I wanted to do Southeast Asia, and uh, they thought, ah, nothing has been done on Singapore. Uh, or that's what Mint, Mint said that. And uh, they were keen on Singapore because they liked the idea uh, of a city because everything happens in a city except planting crops. So, you know, you come in contact with a lot of topics, uh, industry, population, migration, uh, trade, and so forth. And Mint was always fascinated by barter. Uh, I don't think he ever wrote on it, but it fascinated him and the way Southeast Asia tied together. Uh, and Singapore was a center of this. So Mint was really, really keen on Singapore. Uh, so I started doing Singapore. Uh, and in the UK, a dissertation was at least meant to be a publishable piece of work. And so that's how I ended up writing about Singapore. Uh, and then uh, I taught economics uh, for a long time. Uh, and while I was teaching at economics, I was at ANU as part of Tony Reed's uh, uh, project on Southeast Asia. And, and I asked Reed, uh, I, you know, people have written on pre post 1940 or pre-1940 Southeast Asia and post, uh, and they usually seem to write on one or the other, but no one has uh, done the war in between uh, for all of Southeast Asia. And Reed said, well, that's partly because a lot of people think it couldn't be done. Uh, and <laughs> I, I, uh, while I was teaching economics, the what you need, uh, I suppose, if you want to get ahead in inverted commas, is published journal articles. Uh, but at, at Oxford, I was in a, I, for the first time, I was in a history department, uh, and I had space finally to do, uh, <laughs> to do the, 
to do the war and to try to bridge the gap uh, in the literature and try to help uh, understand both pre- and post-war uh, periods. Uh, that was the attempt at any rate. Great. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that, that is, um, that is a gap in the literature. And, uh, I mean, there, especially in terms of economics, I mean, I, I can off the top of my head, I can think of maybe Nicholas Tarling's book. What is that? Yeah. A sudden rampage about war in Southeast Asia, but the, the literature is, is fairly slight. Um, isn't it? Uh, well, there are other, I mean, uh, Paul Kratoska has a, an excellent book on Malaya, but uh-huh. it's, it's really yeah. just on Malaya. I mean, it's, it's, if you want to know about the war in Malaya, you couldn't do better. Uh, right, uh, right. But, but I'm, I'm thinking sort of region wide uh, studies. I don't think, I, as you say, uh, Tarling, but I don't think there's others. Uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, I, and I know that when I when I teach um, the the war in Southeast Asia, many of my students are completely stunned. They've never they've never even thought about this aspect of World War II, and these mostly American students. But you know, they think about it in terms of um, the uh, the West Pacific Islands and then Japan, of course. But there's this whole section that's just blank in their minds, which is ironic, as many of my students in California are of Southeast Asian heritage. Um, Mm. um, Yes, I've got a, I've got a student who's going to Stanford. Uh, I'm not to do, to do a a master's degree in the, in the first instance. Uh, California has a real attraction. It's a kind of a nice place to be, I hear. (laughs) When it's not on fire, <laughs> well, um, yeah, <laughs> we've had we've had a rough couple of years with the fires, but um, Stanford Palo Alto is lovely. It, it, <laughs> Palo is, really lovely. it is, isn't it? But I always feel mm-hmm. when I'm there, I'm yeah. never really dressed good enough to be. I'm never really well enough dressed to be to be at Stanford. <laughs> it's so perfect. <laughs> Well, I, I come from a Cal Berkeley family, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna move on from the, uh, any any discussion of Stanford here. Could, could I could um, I say so, could I just interject a minute? How I mean, it it was a big project, the book, but so I should really acknowledge if there's not another point for so many people who helped. I I mean because we talked about Dutch earlier, and uh, Pierre Van der Ring knows more about Dutch economic history or the Indonesian economic history than anyone anywhere in the world. And he just shared so much material with me uh, and overcame that. And I think, you know, uh, 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 Mike Montesano, who, who knows I mean, he knows an incredible amount about Southeast. Anything you want to know about Southeast Asia, Mike knows. And he uh, he read the book uh, or the manuscript more than once and corrected all sorts of errors about Southeast Asia. So uh, that and, uh, uh, you know, really helped bridge the language gap, which is so difficult in Southeast Asia. Right. We, we were chatting about yeah. that, that earlier. I mean, both 
both the incredible linguistic diversity of Southeast Asia, but also the colonial legacy that many archival holdings would be in French in Aix-en-Provence or in Dutch in Leiden. Is that where the archives are? Um, uh, or maybe Amsterdam, I'm not sure, or or in the UK or, or in the United States for the Philippines and um, Spain prior to 1898. So I... You know, your book is such an achievement by pulling together all these existing bodies of literature that have been siloed uh, into nation state thinking or old colonial thinking by the linguistic um, uh, uh, parameters. Uh, it's kind of you, but I, I really have to acknowledge how much Vandering and uh, uh, Monte Santo helped. <laughs> you know? Great. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, I, I mean, I have to tell you, I'm more than a little embarrassed to say that both during my education and then in my career, I've generally run the other way when I thought uh, what was the um, uh, the ugly little head of economic analysis uh, was popping up, right? I was, I was terrified as a student and, you know, uh, my work is as a cultural historian. Um, however, when I uh, began teaching large world history courses as part of my my job, I had to do substantial reading in the field, and I discovered that the most that much of the historiography of world history, and definitely the most valuable books for my thinking about world history and the way I teach world history, were economic uh, histories. Um, Jan Abu Gold's classic "Before European Hegemony" comes to mind. Um, Shaduri's "Trade and Civilization in the Indian Ocean." Uh, Ken Pomerantz's the, uh, the Great Divergence. Um, these have all so much shaped my thinking. And I'm, I'm now a little embarrassed because when I teach my master's seminar, we actually read a lot of economic history, which was something that I, I wish I'd spent more time when I was in graduate school um, uh, working in, in that field. Um, so for you, what do you think that economic history does that other subfields don't quite capture? You know, what's what's the contribution of economic history to our understanding? History uh, history builds on layers: geography, hmm. economic, political, sociological, anthropological, and they interact. They interact with each other. You need to understand all the layers and how they interact to to get a whole story, to understand history, and and then answer the basic historical questions. Uh, what happens, how it happens, why it happens. And, you know, can you fully explain all these questions if you don't have economic history? Uh, the same as... Uh, as you're telling me about the courses you teach and the reading that you do. Oh. Yeah. I, I, I always think of the, um, the, the quote from, uh, uh, Karl Marx's, uh, 18th premier of, uh, Louis Napoleon about, um, uh, humans make their own history, but not in conditions <laughs> of their own choosing. And that's what, um, especially like Pomerantz's great divergence really made me understand the, the economic um, restrictions that like there's only a certain number of choices one can make with these various economic parameters. Um, I had a better sense of that in terms of geography, but uh, it was, you know, relatively late in, uh, in my sort of development as a historian that I really began to appreciate that economic uh, 
aspect. And I, I think the, your, your book does a great job with that because it, again, it, the, the opening chapters reshaped how I thought about the Pacific war and, um, and, uh, Southeast Asia's role. Um, so as, as we move towards the book, could you say a few words about the economic significance of Southeast Asia? Southeast Asia, well, I suppose even now, but before the war, uh, it's a collection of highly specialized mono economies. Uh, And and there are places that colonial powers find it convenient to produce a few commodities. Uh, And these commodities are fundamental to the global economy. So Southeast Asia fits in I mean, it's closely integrated with the global economy as a producer of a few specialized commodities. Rice, uh, such a, rice, such a rice, rubber, tin, and sugar. <laughs> Those are the main exports. Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredibly mm-hmm. narrow. These are really narrow economies. And not things that you can uh, subsist upon. No, that's part of the problem of the war. I mean, you have, well, you have the food producing areas uh, and they are integrated with the non-food producing areas. But as you said, when the Japanese declare autarky uh, for military reasons, you have a real problem because uh, the non-food producing areas have specialized so much in non-foods that they can't feed themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, so when when Japan moves into Southeast Asia, um, initially sort of pushing into French Indochina in 1940, and then with the the official invasion after uh, uh, December 7th, 1941, um, what were Japan's goals in se- seizing Southeast Asia? Um, be they economic, strategic, political, or or there's even some ideological goals, correct? Well, that is the Japanese story, uh, particularly particularly uh, ideological. Uh, I try to make the argument, and I think it's true, that Japan is pressed at, at home. Uh, it's economically pressed, and it has a leadership. It's absolutely true, the political part, with visions of Japan's rightful place in the world. Uh, but to deal with economic problems, I mean, and the economic problem is that half of Japan's population is in agriculture, and the Japanese have a very low standard of living, and uh, they need, in a very small area, well, about the size of your California, and they need to to industrialize uh, because that's the way you solve that's the way you solve an economic problem of raising standards of living when you don't have much land. Uh, but to industrialize, they need foreign exchange, and for foreign you know, because you have to buy raw material. For foreign exchange, they need to export. But in the 1930s environment of trade restrictions, uh, they're finding it difficult to earn the foreign exchange to buy the raw materials to industrialize. Uh, And their solution 
is, uh, is to build an empire, create an empire, expand on their mini empire. Uh, and they call it the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. And the idea is that it's large enough uh, and insulated enough from the world economy uh, that Japan can create a yen block uh, and pay and pay in yen. Uh, China is thinking about creating its own currency block now, uh, or they'd like to. Uh, and if you can create, if you can create uh, the Greater East Asia Prosperity Sphere, uh, it solves the problem of Japan's development and industrialization, and it solves the problem of an empire and Japan's rightful place in the world. Right. I mean, there's the prestige component uh, as well. I mean, what so economically, what were they thinking that they would get out of Southeast Asia? Was this uh, literally going to fuel the war machine? Uh, well, the one thing they, there's no oil. Well, East Asia is badly deficit in, in oil and there isn't any oil. There isn't any oil in Japan and you can't, you can't, you can't, cannot fight a war even now without oil. So they the one thing they really needed uh, was oil. And Indonesia has oil in uh, Sumatra and Borneo uh, at that time. And they, uh, they thought, well, we have to have war and we might as well... Uh, <laughs> we, 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 there's only one way. There's only one way to to get it, because they were uh, restricted. They had depended on U.S. oil, but then uh, when Cordell Hull cuts off U.S. oil, uh, they feel really pressed uh, and pushed into Southeast Asia. So it's a matter of it's a matter of survival the way the Japanese see it. Absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, I, I think that you make a good point in the beginning that the, in some ways our geographic thinking may be a little um, misleading. It, it seems that Southeast Asia is very close to Japan, but not, not really. <laughs> I mean, there's, <laughs> and there's, there's a, a little thing called uh, the U S Navy that manages to survive Pearl Harbor. Right. So, well, on the one hand, it's it's just right there, but maybe the distortions in the Mercator projection and our failure to really understand the difficulty of long distance maritime transport that kind of undermines that Japanese strategic thinking, well, right? Yes, although I think the strategic thinking was also that uh, that Pacific, the Pacific coast of the U.S. is even is even a lot further. Uh, from mm -hmm. Southeast Asia, and how how are how is the United States going to mobilize to fight a war in Southeast Asia? It's so far. Mm -hmm. And 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 truth is, there's actually relatively little American fighting in Southeast Asia. I mean, MacArthur famously promised he would return, and the United States. Uh, um, 
liberates, reoccupies the Philippines uh, towards the end of the war. But most of the American fighting, ground fighting in World War II are in these much smaller islands in the island hopping campaign. And there's no there's no real invasion of Southeast no, Asia. No, the right? Pacific War is an air and sea war. Maybe maybe right. the last air and sea war will will ever see. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting to think about. Um, um, and so how 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 is the United States able to um, disrupt uh, the Japanese economic strategy for exploiting Southeast Asia? Uh, Japan hadn't hadn't quite uh, reckoned with U.S. submarine warfare, and uh, Japan had not planned uh, really too much in advance, and so they only had enough merchant tonnage, and obviously a small island. Uh, you're absolutely dependent on your merchant marine to feed yourself and for supplies. And uh, when and Japan had discounted submarine warfare, uh, which was a mistake, uh, and they only went into the war with enough merchant tonnage, uh, just just enough if they didn't lose any. But they lost about uh, three quarters of their merchant tonnage by the end of the war, so it was terrible. They were just cut off. Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, that, those statistics you show on the the collapse of the Japanese uh, merchant marine fleet, just astounding. Like, no, there's no way an island nation is going to survive uh, without without the ships. Mm-hmm. I no, mean, it's uh, it's yeah. the it's always was was historically the strength of Britain. You know, the the Royal Navy right. <laughs> always came to the rescue. Right. Right. So, g- given these economic constraints, do you think that the Japanese war was ever winnable? Uh, depends what you mean by win. Uh, Japan needed a short war, just like Germany needed in World War Two. And it might have given a short war, have obtained some part of Southeast Asia. Maybe that was impossible after Pearl Harbor. But Japan was never going to win the long war. It was just too weak economically. It was, there wasn't any comparison economically uh, with the United States. Uh, Japan had 3% of three and a half percent, I think, of world capital goods output. And the U.S. had 40 percent. And if you have capital goods, that's what you make ships and guns and planes with. Uh, Japan just couldn't couldn't match that. Yeah, yeah. That that comparison between the uh, the German need for a quick war, um, I think, is really enlightening. I mean, when, when I teach this, uh, when I teach the well, the Second World War, and then do the Pacific War. I, I um, talk with my students about thinking of this as an Asian Blitzkrieg in late forty-one, forty-two, and that the, the idea of Blitzkrieg, while you know, for for the twelve-year-old boys in the audience, you know, the Blitzkrieg seems this <laughs> yes. big powerful thing, but it's a strategy of a weak, a weak uh, power, right? You need to come in and force, finish the war really quickly because you can't win the long war. 
Um, and that's obviously what happens to, uh, to Germany and, and also to Japan. Yes. Um, so, um, you know, thinking about the, um, uh, the region as a whole, um, what, um, what, what, how did the Japanese administer the various parts of Southeast Asia and, and what were the, what were their assumptions? Um, and uh, could you say a few words about the division between occupied Southeast Asia between the the army and the navy? Well, the army and the navy, as I'm sure you, I'm sure you know from teaching, and Japan were in competition with each other. They didn't quite <laughs> fight a war, and uh, you have an army and navy that are in competition and don't speak to each other. Uh, so Southeast Asia was divided. Uh, between the army and the navy to uh, avoid conflict. But in fact, the army administered uh, most of Southeast Asia with the uh, navy in a subsidiary role. So the army uh, had Java, Malaya, British Borneo, the Philippines, and that really just left the navy in total control of some of the outer islands of Indonesia. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And um, you you argue that the Japanese um, strategy was fundamentally flawed um, and um, Southeast Asia wouldn't wouldn't give the economic success for the, um, the Japanese war machine that was hoped. What... What did the Japanese war planners get wrong? Uh, well, Japanese didn't really plan too much, so I'm not sure about war planners. Uh, okay, <laughs> they didn't. They 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 didn't uh, uh, know much about Southeast Asia, and they had only decided finally to invade. Uh, Southeast Asia in the summer of 1941. And Japanese weren't trained in Southeast Asia and uh, they didn't really plan. Uh, they said they had, they, they were told uh, by some uh, intelligence sources and academics uh that played sort of uh, war games that they couldn't possibly win, but they, the politicians, if you have a dictatorship, said, well, we must win. Uh, right. You, right. you know, what is the alternative? We will, we will win. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And you've got a great, a great quote in the book from um, uh, a Japanese official. I don't know if it was in the Navy or the army, but I think it was maybe the Navy was in outlying Indonesia and saying that he, he really understood what a colonial economy meant at that point and how much of the basic goods were, were imports and how little the, um, the region produced. And um, the, uh, 
I remember that passage. The, it was just, again, this eye-opening moment for the Japanese official on the ground who's supposed to be running this project, realizing that, oh, we, we don't understand what's going on here at all. Uh, well, they, they did. Yes, they, they really had not thought too much about Southeast Asia. You're absolutely right. So the book is organized uh, thematically rather than geographically. Could you say a few words about why you chose that organization? I thought maybe it was uh, clunky to do one chapter, one country, then the next, Uh, that that you needed to see the region as a whole, as part of the global order. Uh, And... Uh, so I preferred to do thematically. I, I, other people might want to do chapter country by country, but uh, I, I, I tried to interrelate and look at themes. Uh, I think because I've always thought that Southeast Asian studies narrowed itself just by looking at one country or another. Yeah, I'm I'm in complete agreement with that with you on that point, and um, I think that is a it is an issue in the field. And you mentioned you worked with Tony Reed, and and you know his his work was so fundamental in in really encouraging many of us to look at Southeast Asia as a field and break down these uh, these nation state parameters. Um, so the book's organized into ch- ten chapters. Um, we've already sort of talked about what's in the first chapter, the main argument about. Um, Japanese weakness and and being projected into into Southeast Asia. Um, the next chapter is on the administration and various forms of social control in Japanese occupied Southeast Asia. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Japan is, you know, this gets back to your point about uh, economic weakness. Uh, Southeast Asia has a population twice Japan's. It, it's 1.7 million square miles. Japan is already pressed in China, uh, so it and and how do you how do you run and control these diverse societies? And the Japanese use three methods, uh, which I expose any occupying power has uh, a mixture of terror, and the terror was truly terrible. Uh, incorporating elites uh so you create uh laurel in philippines and bama and burma and pibin in thailand and and uh 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 and basically you rule through existing administrations and elites and thirdly, you control food. And I, I think that that really hasn't been brought out in Southeast Asian uh, studies enough. Uh, I found that about 130,000 Singaporeans, about 38% of the population, depended on the Japanese for food. Uh, I have a student now who's doing collaboration uh, in, his, uh, in Singapore and his argument is that when you look at it at some level, practically everyone collaborated in Singapore, collaborated with the Japanese because they were dependent on the Japanese for food. Depends how you mm-hmm. define mm-hmm. collaboration. Absolutely. That's 
not easy. But, but part, just some form of participation in That's order right. to survive, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That that food food as a tool of of control in wartime is, I think, a really important contribution. Um, how about the um, the financing for uh, Japan's occupation? Well, you have to finance wars. We see we see that in Ukraine now. You know, trying to stop Russia from financing the war, uh, but in, in when you occupy uh, an area, you and, and you want to finance, you want to finance your war. You can do it by taxation, or selling bonds, or printing money. And Japan really taxes depended on exports. Exports collapsed, so you couldn't tax. Uh, there wasn't really a developed financial market, so you couldn't sell bonds, and that left that left printing money, uh, and so you get the banana money and the Mickey Mouse money, uh, and Japan. It, it, these were these were the slang terms for the money, right? The Mickey Mouse money was in the Philippines, yes. and the banana money was this in, That's in right. Malaya. It's, it has pictures of banana plants. You can buy, yeah. Japan printed so much, you know, and if you want to buy this uh, occupation script, uh, it's very cheap. <laughs> it's the cheapest, it's the, yeah. it's the cheapest currency <laughs> from currency dealers you, you can buy because there's so much of it. Uh, but through finance, Japan uh, trans- transfers a lot of resources, well, not just through finance, to themselves. Uh, I think that uh, it's not, a, it's often stressed how Thailand, uh, how, how they were basically left alone during the occupation. But uh, I, ha- I had a graduate student, uh, Punarat, uh, and we have an article just coming out in the Financial History Review. Uh, Thailand transferred about a fifth of its, in real resources, actual resources, of mm. a, a fifth of its GDP to Japan through the way f- Japan financed the war. Uh, it's it's really important. You have to fin- if you're going to have a war, you have to be able to pay for it. Right, and and the, and Japan's getting Southeast Asia to pay for it through these various yes, mechanisms. Yes, yes, through finance. Well, yeah. if you print, if you print script, if you print your own money, it it allows you to buy resources, but it costs just what it costs to print. So you're 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 obtaining resources practically for nothing, just the cost of printing. Uh, you know, and and it works well. Uh, <laughs> governments do it now, but money is a confidence game. You know, if you print too much of it, people lose confidence, and then you get the inflation and hyperinflation you had in Southeast Asia. Right, right. And what was what was the impact on the occupation in on um, uh, national product and, and trade? This is your your fourth chapter in the book. Uh, well, really, the fourth and fifth chapter, uh, establishing mm, right. what happened to uh, GDP or gross domestic product, or if you want to call it gross national product, the same, almost the same thing. 
I don't think it's generally realized how much that contracted. I, I mean, we worry about a contraction of 5% in GDP or 10% is a catastrophe. Southeast Asian, as you said at the beginning, uh, GDP or national product falls by half everywhere except Thailand. This It's absolutely catastrophic. It's the greatest macroeconomic contraction in modern history. It's, it's just remarkable. And really all the chapters do is substantiate that uh, tracing it through uh, the collapse of transport and public services and what manufacturing Southeast Asia had. And I suppose we've talked about comparing, and that's the, the, the theme, the collapse. Uh, but then really the only way you can substantiate it, because it differs in different countries, is to do in the chapters on a country basis. So, so it isn't mm-hmm. entirely thematic. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I was really struck in the the observations in um, is it maybe chapter five about transportation, and having spent a fair amount of time in <laughs> Indonesia and traveling around Indonesia on various boats, the the way that completely collapsed. Yeah. The, the the Dutch the Dutch uh, lines that were connecting the islands just are gone and it's a return to I guess small prows and and what have you could you say a few yes, words on and that? the same thing in the Philippines mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. another another archipelago well, nation well that's yeah. right I mean they're absolutely dependent on the only way to get from one island to the other <laughs> is 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 by boat uh and of course, transport collapses uh, on, on on land too. I mean, people, the all that's left are rickshaws and bullock carts and uh, carrata or horse carriages in the Philippines or horse carriages elsewhere. Uh, it, it's it's it, it's what you get when you get a collapse of fifty percent in in uh, national national product uh you're back you're back in 1870 right right yeah yeah deindustrialization and that you you note that in um batavia now, now jakarta the the pet shock drivers um uh, are having to use wooden wheels and you have this sort of again deindustrialization of these basic forms of transportation yes, although it's it's really a lack of import i mean it, it brings it brings uh, home how little Southeast Asia had made been able to, or it was so specialized it didn't have the industry that it depended on imports for almost every, for almost every everything uh, all right. all basic products uh, and of course all things like. Uh, tires uh and so you make tires of wood or try to make them a solid rubber and matches you talk you talk about in the philippines uh people trying to split (laughs) matches in half to get them to last longer yes uh, i've often wondered how you can do that very effectively Uh, some people go back to flint 
<laughs> and stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just all, I mean, and, and, and this is the the Southeast Asian economic system is, of course, structured prior to the war by the colonial empires who are have used the region for extraction for their own purposes and for selling their own, um, uh, ex- exporting their industrial goods. Yes, um, but, but structured too because of the global economy. It's a comparative mm-hmm. advantage of Southeast Asia is in mm-hmm. these few products and they specialize so entirely and rely and use that money to buy imports that they do you know as we we know I mean, there was a handicraft industry but uh, and there's still a handicraft and you still make some textiles but southeast asia not generally recognized i think uh Everywhere in Southeast Asia, the, the economies depended uh, for their textile consumption for about three quarters of their textile consumption on imports. So mm-hmm. when you don't have imports, uh, you know, clothing wears out. I, 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 I thought about that in relation to your work on on rats, you know. Did you hmm. notice in Did you notice in the uh, in the book that uh, people start wearing because they don't have any clothing, uh, start wearing gunnies uh, for clothing, and the uh, Japanese uh, threatened with rats, as Southeast Asia does have a tendency to be. Uh, give a pair of gunny shorts as a prize for 15 rat tails. Uh, <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> in, in any rat moment in, in Southeast Asian history, well, I get did very you excited. Notice that, did you notice in, in, in Burma, when, uh, in, in Rangoon, uh, when there's a plague uh, associated with rats, uh, you, every, every person has to deliver a rat tail. Uh, and yep. you can be badly beaten if you don't deliver a rat tail. Well, of course, specialization. Uh, people, uh, a market develops uh, in rat tails. <laughs> you know, easier to buy one than, than go out and get your own rat. Yep, yep, yep. And then, and, and then it can lead to uh, the black market in yeah, rats in rat and, tails, and, rat tails yes. and, and, and smuggling and... and uh, illicit production <laughs> um so, so what what was the impact on um consumer goods i mean this is kind of an obvious question here um what sort of shortages were um were induced and and were there were there any possibilities of substitutions um well this is this is your the next chapter chapter six humans are very inventive you get all you get mm-hmm. all you wouldn't uh it's a remarkable range of substitutes when you don't have anything uh and i suppose that was a fun chapter to to do because uh you uh you don't realize how many things can be made well you have rubber and rice uh and sugar in abundance all the things, so that's basically what you can use to make things out of. So you you make uh, 
you distill rubber for, but you don't have petrol or gasoline, I guess. Uh, you distill, you make rubber oil to run cars on. Uh, you have coconuts in the Philippines. You use coconut husks to fuel the power stations. Uh, you distill, uh, you, you, you distill uh, rice or sugar to make a sort of a, a sort of a fuel. Uh, you run cars on charcoal. You make boats and horseshoes and canteens and rice cookers, uh, asphalt uh, for airport runways out of rubber. <laughs> they're, they're, they're very imperfect substitutes, but uh, uh, it was a fun chapter. Uh, you wouldn't... Uh, <laughs> You you wouldn't have quite believed all the things you you can you can substitute for. Right, it, it makes me think of uh, Paris during the German occupation as well, and uh, the various mechanisms that uh, the French resorted to to uh, power their vehicles. Um, so, while that was a fun chapter, chapters seven and eight um, are much less fun. These were really for me, really painful chapters to read. I mean, I, uh, having worked in Vietnamese history, obviously I know the famine of 1945 very well and just how truly horrific that was. So in chapter seven, eight, you look at food and famine in Southeast Asia and or in chapter, that's in chapter seven. And then chapter eight, you get into food and living standards in the cities of Southeast Asia. So could you, you talk about the, the collapse of food and the, the famines? Well, I do talk about the, uh, I do talk about the Vietnamese famine. I I, I try in chapter seven to look uh, beyond uh, Southeast Asia is so divided regionally, ethnically, in class, uh, and so not everyone suffers. I mean, most Southeast Asians end up malnourished to a greater or lesser degree. Uh, but for example, in Malaya, the Chinese do better than the Malays, and the Malays do better than the Indians. Uh, Malays fishermen on the east coast suffer, but much less so on the west coast of Malaya. Uh, lower, and you don't realize quite how integrated Southeast Asia is, or at least I didn't. Uh, Lower Burma and Middle Burma depend on one another, and and of course, as you were, I think, probably about to point out, uh, uh, Tonkin and uh, 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 North Annam depend on Cochin China for for rice, and and when that rice is when that rice uh, the war. And 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 one and a series of typhoons stops that rice. You get, uh, well, Vietnam famine. I, you know, as I'm sure you know, and I'm not sure how many people how. It's the greatest famine in world history. I mean, I know thirty million people died in China, but or in modern history. Uh, I'll qualify. World history is a long time. Uh, 
if you you've got to look at famines as percentage of the people in a given population that die. Uh, so thirty million in China or seven million in Ukraine in the, in the 30s is a, is more people than Vietnam, but you know obviously it's it's a, yeah, a larger population right. base. Yeah, and and one of the things that I, I talk about with my students is that when we look at the history of famine, we need to, of course, recognize the deaths. But for every death, um, you're going to have dozens more people who narrowly escaped death, uh, but went through prolonged periods of malnutrition. And especially for developing um, uh, bodies, uh, children and young adults, I mean, this is lifelong implications uh, for well. This. This prolonged period of malnourishment. Yeah, absolutely, Mike, and not just lifelong, but for individuals, but for the economy, uh, people tend to be less productive. I, there, in economic history now, uh, people look at events well, like the, like the Dust Bowl uh, in the nineteen thirties, uh, and uh, in the middle United States and you you can you can trace these people and generally find out how 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 much the long term the, the long term suffering I'm not sure how you would mm-hmm, do that mm-hmm. for Vietnam but if if you could I'm sure you would find it yeah yeah and and that context of the famine is absolutely essential for understanding the tumultuous political events of the the next few years for Vietnam. Um, the chapter nine is on labor in Japan, and of course, you know, uh, we have the the, the famous um, railway construction, um, you know, fictionalized in David Lean's Bridge on the River Kwai, um, which you know, one one of the great films of World War II, obviously. Um, but uh, could you talk to us a bit about um, the Japanese use of labor? You uh, in economics, it's kind of obvious to anyone. Uh, you you substitute uh, the cheap factor for the dear or expensive factor, uh, and for Japan, uh, labor was practically was free, or almost free, uh, and unlimited. So you use. Uh, extensive labor extensively uh, to build, uh, well, not just the railways, but airfields and defense installations. Uh, And you get incredibly high death rates. Uh, You need to look at death rates uh, as a per, per... track, railway track kilometer, uh, and we know it's about 215 deaths for every kilometer of the Thailand-Burma railway built, but it, it is, and it's even more astounding when you look at the uh, central Sumatra and uh, railways in Java where they were uh, close to 400 deaths. Per kilometer, per kilometer, uh, just, uh, just well, 
it really astounding. And who who are these laborers? I mean, the the image we get from the David Lean film is British POWs, but um, that's a small percentage. Um, who 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 else well, is being um, pressed into service here? And and are 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 they being forced? Is it um, are there economic inducements? Are are some of these recruited laborers? Uh, some are some are recruited. Some are pulled off the street. Some are uh, told they could. Uh, they could see a film, uh, and then when they get inside the cinema, locked in and taken, taken to, taken to the railway. But uh, there's three times as many Asians as Europeans that work that working on the, and and for the other railways, all, almost all Asians, three times as many Asians as Europeans on the Thailand Burma railway but six times as many Asian deaths. Uh, Even greater. And are, are, they, are they Thai, um, ethnic Chinese, well, South Asian? Well, not so Asian? much Thai. Uh, Thailand, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Thailand transferred a lot of its national income to J- Japan, uh, but it was, it was pretty much... Uh, Left alone, uh, you know, within well, compared to the rest of Southeast Asia, so a lot of the laborers are taken from uh, Malaya and uh, Bama. A sweat army uh, sends a. a about I think about ninety one thousand uh, come from uh, or ninety two thousand from Burma, and ninety one thousand, so one hundred eighty three thousand in all from Malaya, Java, and Indochina. Mm-hmm. And I know in the um, post colonial. Um, Indonesian nationalist uh, narratives. This factors very heavily. If you go to uh, Monas, the um, the monument, the national monument uh, Sukarno built in in central Jakarta, um, and you look at the the bas relief showing Indonesian history. There's there's you know depictions of exploitation under the Dutch, but then there's a huge section for suffering under the uh, under the Japanese occupation and the forced labor. And in some ways that, that rivals like the, those three years rival the 300 years of Dutch, uh, of Dutch exploitation, at least in the representation in the iconography. That's, that's interesting. And I stayed in the, uh, I, I stayed in the, uh, hotel opposite that monument, I think. And I, I did, oh, I, yeah. I missed that. The, yes. The Brobador. Yeah. The Brobador, yeah. Oh, you know, you need to you need to go to Monas and and look at the um, look at look at the the boss relief around the base there. It's an, it's it's fascinating. Um, and it's like like so much of that Suharto Sukarno and later Suharto era narrative, it hasn't been revised. It's still it's still the old uh, the old. I narrative. Say, uh, may, maybe as a cultural historian, you picked that up and I miss. <laughs> I should. I shouldn't. Have. I get to. I get to. I get to go to museums and look at monuments. I don't have to deal with the numbers, except for except for when I'm counting dead rats. <laughs> then I have to <laughs> deal with the numbers. So the 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 last chapter is um, 
costs and, and lessons of the war. Um, what, what are some of your conclusions well, here? The war cost Japan uh, about four, 40 times uh, in, uh, as much as, as anything it obtained from Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia was so global. It was globalized uh, and served the world economy, and Japan's economy was so small uh, they couldn't use in the quantity Southeast Asia produced rubber and tin uh, really couldn't use any of, any of it. I mean, maybe it was valuable. They denied it to the Allies, but then the Allies uh, developed synthetic rubber. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the petroleum was one of the big, uh, the big goals, but... Mm-hmm. Allied uh, allied attacks that, on shipping that, lines that's, destroy that. That's right. Uh, you know, so by March 1945, uh, an oil tanker from Singapore to Japan was essentially a suicide mission. Yeah, yeah. So, so the occupation, which was supposed to be this economic lifeline for um, the weak economy of Japan actually worsens uh, Japan's economic situation during the war? Am I understanding that uh, right? As a, as a, as a, as a well, drain? It is a, it, 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 it is a drain. I, if Japan was going to use Southeast, and they try to do this, it would need to reconfigure Southeast Asian economies. Uh, and particularly uh, before the war, Japan depended on... Uh, the United States for oil and cotton. <laughs> so uh, Southeast Asia would have to be reconfigured to produce cotton. But you can't get around geography. You you can't, you grow a little cotton in Thailand and, and uh, northern Burma, but you basically don't, can't produce, it's not a tropical crop. Yeah, it's mostly coming from South yeah. Asia, right? From uh, uh, what's now Pakistan. Well, yes, or the southern United States. Yeah, okay, American imports too, yeah. Well, um, you've been really generous with your time, um, but I've got two more questions before, um, before I let you go. Um, first, uh, can you suggest two books to our listeners um, related to the, our conversation? Well, you mentioned uh, Tarling's book, A Sudden Rampage. Uh, that's a fairly short book. It gives you a kind of an inter- introduction and overview. Uh, and uh, Paul Kratoska's book on the Japanese occupation uh, is very good on Malaya. Uh, he spent a long time researching that. But beyond that... Uh, well, as you were suggesting earlier, uh, or almost suggested, or essentially said, all history is comparative. So, you know, you can read uh, read about the war in World War II in China or Europe. You run into some of the same thematic problems, uh, except... Germany is awfully efficient, you know. It transfers about uh, half of French national income to Germany mm-hmm. in one mm-hmm. way or another. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as I understand it, one of Hitler's preoccupations was to keep the home front as happy as possible, having witnessed what happened in the, in the Great War and the collapse of the home front. Yes, uh, which was a problem for Germany because uh, in war, you need to transform your economy from consumer production to military production. So you need to be able to cut back on consumer goods. And uh, Hitler didn't want to do that. Uh, the German economy never really transferred to war production. Uh, that was a problem in Japan, too. Uh, they, they never really... Uh, Japanese starved, and uh, there probably would have been a famine in Japan uh, uh, by the autumn of 1945. Uh, but Japan never really cut back on the share of consumption to shift into military goods. But Hitler, as you say, Hitler right. didn't want to See, do this... that. Right. Yeah, and this is, again, for someone who who did not really engage economic history when he was receiving his training, um, these are such important parameters for all the political and military decisions. Um, and I, I, I just I value these insights so much um, for trying to understand the war. So uh, finally, um, what are you working on now and what could we hope to see from you next? One shouldn't say what one's working on because it may be one of those books that never gets finished, you know. <laughs> you, know you don't want to do those. But what I, I'll, I'll, I'll be bold. What I'm trying to do is an economic history of Southeast Asia since 1870. So connect it, connect it with the war and take it right up to... Uh, 2020 or uh, and see if you can connect can write a can can write a, an economic history of Southeast Asia uh, I have a chapter that, uh, Robert Cribb is editing volume 2 of the, they're doing a new Cambridge history which I'm sure you I'm sure you know about uh and I think they're talking about this at the Association of Asian Studies meeting. Uh, and I have a chapter in there. Uh, well, the books haven't come out yet. Uh, or I think or st some of the chapters may still be written with some of the themes of, of that, how, how you try to connect Southeast Asian history and look for parallels between the pre-war and post-war periods. Uh, so that's what I'm trying Great. to do anyway. Great. Well, I look forward to seeing that. And if you're, if you're looking for a subtitle for that economic history of 1870 to uh, 2020, there's always from colonies to COVID. <laughs> it's got a nice alliteration. <laughs> a nice alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Dr. Greyhoff, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Mike, it was I've listened to your podcast before. It was a genuine pleasure to be on one. Thank you so much. 
Great. Thank you. Um, this has been a conversation with Greg Huff of Pembroke College, University of Oxford, about World War II in Southeast Asia, Economy and Society under Japanese Occupation, out with Cambridge in 2020. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.